Welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, architect Louis Hernan, evolutionary biologist Katia Pineberg, and designer Carolina Ramirez Figuera discussed their collaboration, Whisper, Drifter, Trickster. I'm Carolina Ramirez Figueroa. I'm a lecturer at the Royal College of Art. My background is in architecture, and my work is powered by critique and curiosity on the way that living and non living entities come together. Through my work, I combine material experimentation, exhibition, and critical theory to look at the intersection of architecture, design, and living systems. And I'm joined here today by Katja Peinenberg from Naturalis Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands and my partner in crime, Louis Hernan from University of Sheffield. Hello, my name is Katja Pijnenburg. Indeed, I work at the Natural History Museum in the Netherlands, in Leiden. I'm also an associate professor at the University of Amsterdam, and I'm a group leader at this Natural History Museum where we study plankton diversity and evolution. Hello, I'm I'm Louis Hernan. I'm a lecturer at the Sheffield School of Architecture, collaborating with Carolina and and Katja in in this very exciting project. So when I was still finishing my PhD back in 2017, I, I came across the BioArt Design Award, a competition sponsored by the Dutch government to incentivize collaboration between designers and scientists. Part of the competition involved a series of speed dating sessions where you had the opportunity to have conversations on, on different points of connections. That is how I really got to meet uh, Katya. And I still remember that she was wearing a very cute dress with these beautiful marine organisms that really caught my attention. And somehow we engaged in a conversation and that's how everything everything began. Yeah, indeed, it was really fun. I got invited as a scientist uh, because I recently uh, obtained a large research grant from the Dutch Science Foundation to go on this speed dating appointment with artists. And I thought, well, that, that sounds really exciting. And I put on my pretty dress and, and, and got speed dating. And actually it was quite funny because I believe we anonymously had to put our first and second choice on a card, which was then entered into a big ballot. And then it was really like a question whether there was a match or no, not, right? And then finally, we were matched together and then we could start talking about a potential uh, project. Yeah, it was it was a bit random and, and really I, I believe we were quite lucky that we found really these points of connections. I also remember you have these 3D printed pieces of some of these organisms with you and that sparked quite a lot of conversation between the both of us. Of, you were explaining quite a lot about how, how interesting analyzing some of these shells. Well, I think... I could imagine also an architect being inspired by snails because they also build their houses. I think that was a good way for us to to start the conversation. So Katia, what brought you to to marine biology? You know, what made you to be interested in these uh, amazing organisms that are planktonic snails? I've always been interested in living creatures. I think my mom already said I was going to be a biologist when I was very small. And we spent our summer holidays at the Dutch seaside. So I think that's where the basis was laid for me becoming a marine biologist eventually. However, after high school, I was also considering to go to art school because I, I also really like to make beautiful things. However, I was also interested in the sciences and especially in biology. And then I chose uh, biology as my subject. 
And it's nice to come a bit full circle now through my, my career as a biologist, also collaborating with artists and try to make beautiful things together. Then about the snails. Well, at some point during marine biology, I saw my first plankton sample and it was a living sample. So um, my teachers really went through this effort to get a fresh zoopla- uh, plankton sample that we looked at through the microscope. And that's a bit like Louise said, it's where an invisible world was made visible to me, basically. And I, I remember that moment. I was really fascinated by this diversity and uh, I really wanted to know ev- more about it. What is happening in the open oceans? How did this diversity arise? How is it persisting? So, and then later on, I was also, I did a lot of evolutionary biology uh, using genomic and molecular tools to study evolution in the open ocean. I came more and more interested in planktonic snails, mostly because, well, first of all, they are the only animal plankton with a good fossil record. So as an evolutionary biologist, that's really valuable because then you can maybe say when certain species arose, so you can put a timestamp on your findings. And also uh, planktonic snails, there was a lot of interest in them because they were identified as potential bioindicators of climate change and then in particular ocean acidification. It's it's actually the first time that I heard the story of you wanted to go to art school, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you are a researcher, you are in a research institute, but you also work in a museum, which I think is a really is a really unique combination. And I now it makes sense to to think that you were thinking about becoming an artist and your role now. But I think it's really it's really peculiar, it's really important in the way that you approach this subject, but also the way that you approach these sort of collaborations, these science art collaborations. Yes, I I mean, I think communication is incredibly important. I think everywhere in society, but also for a scientist. And it's inspiring to work in a museum because we have hundreds to thousands of visitors every day from the general public, which is very different from a university environment, which is also great. But I like the museum because there's this direct connection with the public. There's a good platform to try and translate your research findings to a broader audience. And this is how I'm hoping also to have more impact. I mean, I also found really fascinating. I think the the first time that we came to have a conversation, you were carrying some of these 3D printed pieces of some of the shells of of the sea butterflies. And it was really fascinating the way that you were able to explain and, and communicate about your work. Well, that's some some interest, I think, that we share amongst the three of us is that we like 3D models and then printing those models. And I think if you work on tiny snails like me, some less than a millimeter, then it's really great if you can actually blow them up 200 times and people can hold them in their hands. This makes a connection possible with this research subject that's otherwise a little bit invisible or fake. So I, I always like to make something that's, yeah, that's concrete, that people can hold in their hands. It comes out of a tool that we use to study their shell. So we use uh, micro CT scanning to produce this 3D model. And uh, we use that to quantify the amount of calcium carbonate, which tells us something about 
uh, how they've been calcifying. And that's something that we are interested in from the perspective of ocean change. For instance, like one of the questions I aim to answer with my research is, can these planktonic snails still build their shells in an acidifying ocean? I think for me, uh, that was really what attracted me to your research, because my work really touches a lot on, on the materiality. So materiality has always been really important in my work. As part of my PhD, I was looking at the way that living systems generated form. So I was really interested about how different human-made structures were compared to structures found in nature. And I was really trying to understand, because in architecture, we, we use a lot of geometric abstractions, right? In living systems, it's all about a series of reactions and processes. At that point, I was really interested in the way that avalanche shells, you know, how they produce their shells, how these organisms have different crystals composition. When you started talking a little bit about these sea butterflies and the way that their shells were being dissolved as a result of the reduction of, the, of calcium carbonate in the ocean, and how by studying the, the pattern of, of some of these malformations and dissolutions, you could understand more about the ocean chemistry. I think for me, that was really, really fascinating. And also, you know, getting to understand a little bit more about this notion of indicator, which I think in the collective imaginary, we always think of indicators as something of, you know, it, it is like an instrument, right? It's a tool that we just use to indicate something. And it's a very linear um causality, right? For instance, if we think about, uh, you know, the, the limon test strips that changes colors depending on the pH levels, you always associate, so there's a cause and effect. And for me, it was really difficult to imagine uh, an organism being an indicator. So maybe you can mention, you, you, can, you can explain a little bit more. That was very interesting for me also about our collaboration, because you made me think much more about this whole notion of indicator. I have to say, we've used this term um, saying that they could be bioindicators because they are extremely sensitive to ocean acidity. And that's because a uh, number of reasons. Uh, one of them, uh, because their shells are made of aragonite, which is a structure that is uh, more soluble than calcite. They have extremely thin shells. That's also because they, they are drifting in the open ocean. And they occur, for instance, in the polar regions where the changes in ocean acidity are happening the fastest. So there's all these reasons why these snails are, are said to be extremely sensitive. However, of course, they are not working like a litmus paper where, I mean, if you want to measure the ocean acidity, you can measure the pH, for instance. It's, it's actually not like that because we want to know what is the impact of these ocean changes on, on life. And then it becomes a lot more complicated because then there's going to be biology in the way. Biology always makes everything complicated. And then I was thinking, okay, but for instance, if they can adapt, which is what I'm interested in as an evolutionary biologist, can they still be a good indicator? I think not, right? Because if they're more resilient than we think, that's of course good news, but then they are not maybe indicating there's a problem. <laughs> if they should be indicating there is a problem. Because also my research is not that straightforward. I mean, we find that from some perspective, they are extremely sensitive. Yes, there are places in the world where their shells are beginning to dissolve because there's too much CO2 already dissolved in the ocean. 
However, we also have some indications that they are more resilient than we thought. For instance, the group seems to be a lot older, uh, evolutionary older, if we zoom out, than, than we thought. So they have actually survived several previous calcification crises in the past few millions of years. So maybe they are more resilient than, than we thought. And then there are some experiments on certain species that show that actually they are, even though they're not dissolving from the outside, they already have problems making their shell. So this is actually kind of opening a can of worms, right? It's not simple. And then I think uh, you came with that idea, Carolina, that maybe we should see them as oracles and speaking in riddles. And I thought, Yes, that's something that appeals to me because, yes, sometimes we have research findings that are not so straightforward to interpret. The common understanding of indicators makes it really difficult to communicate with these organisms, right? Because they not only point to a single and a straightforward cause, but they, they might connect with a number of potential effects. And some of them might be, like you said, you know, connected with evolution or, or other crises that they may have had in the past that they may experience in the, you know, in the present and maybe they might experience in the future. We're still getting quite a lot of information and they are indeed indicators. So they become, that's what I, I really came to use the term of oracles because they are telling us something, but it's really for us to interpret what is it that they're telling us and how can we actually gather that message or, and, and, and be able to communicate with them. Yeah, and there's so many unknowns, right? So we don't know how they make this shell. We don't know really what genes are responsible for making the shells. We don't really know what proteins are in the shell that hold the crystals together. We have no idea how certain groups of these sea butterflies produce a structure, which is a helical microstructure that's unique in the evolution of life. We, have, we don't know of any other group of organisms that can do that. So there are so many unknowns. So we don't really speak their language. And that's why also I think there's, there's more research needed to, uh, it's not simple to just use them as indicators. So I think this is where the idea of the project really um, started to shape. So the idea of the project is to look at a larger historical understanding of indicator that uh, goes back to divination. So indicators are something that we use to make sense of the world and we give them power to affect our behaviors. We invest some authority on these, uh, on these uh, um, you know, oracles or indicators um, to connect the personal with the immediate and, and the occult and the, and, the, and the mystical. So the things that we really don't know for sure. And I, I remember that a lot of these also came out with discussions with Luis about his work on spectrums because he used to work a lot about with digital technologies and how some of these um, Wi-Fi connections uh, became some kind of a, a spectrum. So maybe, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, Luis. Yeah, and when I joined the the team, that that was one of the parts that I thought was really great about the project: that interpretation of uncertainty and all these things that we don't really know. That Katia was was explaining how we can explain that from the perspective of these organisms talking to us in riddles or talking to us in a, in a language that we don't really truly understand. And I think that was way connected to me on that sort of intellectual, on that conceptual, almost poetic way in the sense of how do you make sense of these? How do you create these stories? And how do you make sense of the invisible? As you say, as, as you mentioned, 
And part of my work has been on Wi-Fi, has been on invisible wireless connections. And part of what I what I do a lot is to create or rather to take a more historical perspective on this. And when you, for instance, look at the technology that we use in Wi-Fi and, and, and these sort of exchange protocols that we use nowadays, they all come back to the same base technology that we used to use in the 19th century for wireless telegraphy. And of course, when you look at wireless telegraphy, the moment that it came out into the world and came out into the market, quite a lot of people started creating connections with the spirit world. So there was this sort of almost parallel development of the technology and at the same time of spiritism and all this idea of communicating with the dead. And of course, communicating with invisible is nothing new. But the idea of communicating with the invisible, almost with tappings, almost with almost with a Morse code, came out of this this connection between the with the technology. So, I think that that is something that is quite quite nice, and it's a good, a really good strategy, a really good parallel, a really good um, metaphor to try and understand this uncertainty, to try and understand these sort of things that we don't really understand that well, and going on that sort of connection of language of talking to one of one of the things that i find fascinating is the difficulty in communicating not only because they talk to us these 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 tricksters these oracles they talk to us in a language that we don't quite understand but because physically materially it's, it's very difficult to get to them and katia i was i was hoping that you could you could talk a little bit about what the expeditions to get samples from the snails imply, and we sort of think of these snails as perhaps something that we could find on the on the beach. But of course, it's it's very difficult to get to to get hold of them. Yes, that's true. You generally need actually a research vessel, so a real ship, to go and sample them. Although there are places, mostly in tropical regions, I think, where there are sometimes can be shells found on the beach. But as said, the shells are generally quite small between few millimeters to maximum a centimeter and they are extremely fragile so they will often be broken anyway so they're not like the big fat shells that we normally find on the beaches or at least not in in northern europe here they are much more sturdy um so so yes we we've been on several of these big ocean expeditions where it takes months to prepare and uh, we go out with a team where mostly we sample during the night and we use, uh, we use the cranes on the ship to, uh, to lower a plankton net, which has a very fine mesh. And we, uh, we usually fish for between half an hour to an hour and then filter lots and lots of seawater. And then we catch the whole planktonic assemblage, which is a diverse uh, assemblage of, of all kinds of creatures. And I focus on the animal plankton. There's also tiny microscopic plants, which are part of the plankton. Plankton actually meaning wanderer, drifter from the Greek planktos. It's actually a very diverse uh, group uh, containing also the larvae of a lot of uh, bottom dwelling marine organisms. And also uh, a lot of creatures that are planktonic or drifting all of their lives like snails or tiny jellies and crustaceans, such as copepods and tiny shrimp-like creatures. And, and they are really important for the functioning of the marine ecosystem. They are the basis of marine food webs. 
And for instance, the, the plant's plankton produces half of the world's oxygen. So usually, I, I mean, I, I say these things to make people aware that this is a really important part of our planetary system. And without plankton, really, we wouldn't be here either. But focusing on the snail, so you have this, this huge plankton sample, and then you sort that uh, through a microscope, and then you are brought to this amazing world, which is, it's actually exhilarating every time the net comes up. There is something new to see, actually. So this is keeping me inspired every time, even though on the ship you don't sleep very much and it's actually quite hard work. And sometimes it's also really rough because the, there, is, uh, there is a lot of wind and high waves and you still have to sit behind your microscope and trying to pick out the little snails that you, you are interested in or other organisms. There's always something new to see. Yeah, I, I think they are really fascinating. These sea butterflies, we, they are called sea butterflies because they have their snails, but their foot has evolved into two wings with which they fly through the water, a bit similar to how insects fly through the air. And then you have shelled and unshelled uh, organisms in this group. And the unshelled ones are called sea angels. And they actually predate, or so they attack those sea butterflies. They are carnivores, and then uh, they eat the sea butterflies. So that sometimes is actually happening under your microscope. So you are like witnessing this, this world that is totally amazing, actually. And then as a scientist, you get these questions like, okay, so why do some have shells and others don't? Do they really need a shell? Does it matter if the shell is thinner or thicker? Um, why, so why do they even have the shell? Um, and, and, and if we are going to put more and more CO2 in the atmosphere, are we gonna see some evolution perhaps towards shell-less planktonic snails? And those kinds of questions then uh, you try and answer when you're back in the lab, back home, where I look at, for example, their genomes, their diversity, their, the genetic diversity in populations, uh, the level of connectivity between populations, because these are all factors that are important to, to shed light on the question, can they adapt? And actually, I, this is a really difficult question to answer. I mean, for that, we can look into the past, like, so how did they do in the past? But of course, I, I don't have a glass bowl, right? I can't really predict the future, even though... That's really what we're trying to do. Like we're trying to predict the future also by doing experiments. But then of course you can't, you can't actually simulate the real future. It's always unrealistic in the lab, of course. So yeah, as a scientist, we try to provide the answers as accurately and truthfully as we can, right? Until some other person proves us wrong. That's how science works. That's not about beliefs, right? So yeah. I think it's really interesting because the way that you were describing is is it's interesting how much we think of this divination process of this forecasting the future as the scientist in that being in that in that role in the role of trying to imagine what happens in the future based on what happened in the past based on the evidence based on what you can feel that you can see in these organisms and morphology the changes in the in the form and of course there is this connection that when we think about an oracle, we always think about a person. The first reference I, I'd imagine is the Oracle of Delphi and this 
people who get into these trances in order to connect with the divine, in order to connect with that which is vast and tell us something about our personal life. But of course, when we look back at different cultures, at different moments in history, there is always the sense of where there is always an oracle that is non-human. There is always an oracle which is an object, which is an organism. We can think of casting of shells, of course. You can think, for instance, of casting of maize kernels in, in ancient Mexico with, with Aztecs. And I think that's, that's really interesting in the way of how do we understand this language and how do we um, conceptualize this language and how do we conceptualize these groups, all this texture that you were talking about before of these um, shells, how you scan them, how you find all these variances, how do you interpret all these variances. And I think this is one of the parts that we capture in, in the documentary of some of the process that goes through one of these shells and these very advanced high-tech scanners that is basically generating this point cloud that generates this 3D model that then we can, we can 3D print. That of course, we, we share that interest in those 3D printed morphologies that when you blow them up, they look absolutely amazing and they are really interesting to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really fascinating um, for me when, when we had the chance to, to go to Naturalis for this two-week residency and see how your research group was really looking at the snails from different ways, right? From what you described about how difficult it's actually to get hold of them. And I, if I understand correctly, they don't survive for, they don't survive for long outside the ocean. No, exactly. Yeah, they are truly oceanic creatures. So when you fish them out of their open ocean habitat in your little dish underneath the microscope, they only last maybe for an hour or so. And in our experiments, we, we did our very best to make them happy at least for three days. <laughs> but and then, yeah, we try to keep them alive for longer, but they are open ocean creatures. So it's difficult to study them in a realistic way, like there's always, of course, the experimental bias there. But I think that's what uh, made it fascinating because I remember seeing the um, the shells and, and it, they become so precious, right? These precious totems that that you study them, in, you know, from from seeing the, the morphology to dissolving them and understanding the chemistry and the comp so it was it was really fascinating to see you, how um, you know how much information you can actually get out of them. And I guess what you were describing already about how your work has this connection with temporality. So you make these experiments about the past and the present and the future conditions in order to understand, you know, the effects that, you know, the chemistry might have on, on, on the shells and, on, and somehow try to predict or even understand uh, the, the behavior these organisms have to their, to their environment. And I think, yeah, this is, this is what we, like Luis was mentioning, um, something that we really, I think, were able to capture in the documentary and, and we're able to engage with the different team members of your group to understand how they uh, engage with these uh, organisms because they all have a, a different way of engagement and, and they, see them, they see them in a really interesting way. And, and hopefully that, that, that comes across really nicely on, on, on the documentary. We have the opportunity, obviously, to to take some of these scans of the shells and, like you said, blow them up 10 times, maybe 20 times. And each of these shells have, has a story on its own. 
that's something I think very cool about snails because, well, I, I mentioned they have this fossil record. So we have a record over evolutionary time, but actually the shell of a snail is also the record of its lifetime, right? You, there is a record. I mean, they grow incrementally so the top of the shell is when they were a baby you know when they were a juvenile and then they they add the whorls to become bigger and or sometimes we see these growth lines and and there's as i mentioned there's a lot of things we don't know we don't even know how old these organisms can become for instance how many generation cycles there are in different places of the world but we try also to read that from the shells so Whisper Drifter Trickster. So all, all of this is really as a way of introducing the actual project. And I'm, I'm wondering, Karine, if you, if you want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the project, how, how much has changed in the last few, few years, really? Yeah, so the project started as um, what I already mentioned, this machine of divination that was constructed around three stations. And that also might explain a little bit more about the reason behind the name. So... The first station is supposed to be the whisper, which is um, initially was it was thought as a network of pipes and mouthpieces that were going to be used to communicate with the audience. So the audience were able to whisper the oracle. So maybe either blow on these mouthpieces on pipes and metaphorically, you know, ask the oracle uh, a question. And the second station, which is called Drifter, it really takes the the name of coming back to what Caddy was explaining before about. Plactonic, you know, our organisms are actually drifting in, in the ocean. They are not really swimming, they are drifting, and some of them might be even flying in the ocean. So I really took that, uh, I, was, I was initially taking that for the second station, which is um, it's supposed to be a tank where all these sh- shells, 3D printed pieces that are based on uh, um, existing organisms, were going to be suspended. And, you know, once the you whisper into the first station, something happens that might trigger... Um, a behavior inside the tank. And finally, the last station, which is called Trickster, um, it was thought to be um, where you get the answer from the oracle. And initially, you know, the idea was to have some fragments of these shells that had been dissolved by some of these chemical reactions. But obviously, um, you know, since we started this collaboration, the project has changed quite a lot and we have gone through different stages. You know, after spending time in, in the residency with Katia's uh, research group, uh, we realized that actually dissolving the shells was something that happened really fast and something that we couldn't really control that well. So we, we've been exploring other ways to being able to present um, these organisms to the, to the audience and, 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 and think about how they might engage with the fragments or this dissolution of, of, of them. So, so, so that initial uh, idea of distillation has changed a bit. And obviously now with, uh, uh, with the challenges that we faced with, with the coronavirus, there have, have been an, a lot more restrictions. So we, we, we have now imagining ways that the audience can still somehow uh, interact with the piece. But we, we believe now, and, and I think this is something we, we bring together, uh, Louise, it's about contemplation, right? It's about how we um, still get to engage with the ocean, but maybe in a less direct way. One thing that sort of connected or rather triggered this, this last phase of the project, this last incarnation of the project was the idea of wonder, the idea of amazement, the idea of contemplation, mainly inspired by, by Rachel Carson, but also reflecting on 
many of the conversations we've had throughout this collaboration. And um, Katya, I know that we've been talking many times about how you communicate this sort of research to the public and the challenges that you normally face in, in, in trying to bring this to the general public and explaining the importance, the relevance of, of snails and ocean acidification. Yes, indeed. I, I think, yes, the overall aim of this collaboration has been really to connect people to the ocean. Of course, people being terrestrial or land animals, the, the, the ocean is quite distant to us. And it's important that we understand more about the oceans and that actually our lives also depend on the ocean and the functioning of the entire planet actually depends on the ocean. So this is for me important because I feel as a scientist quite often frustrated at trying to really reach people somehow. And I think some, sometimes with the help of artists, it's possible to maybe uh, touch them more deeply, people. I, I really believe that if people uh, wonder about something or, or really feel something, uh, love something, they will take care of this more. So this is, uh, I think, one of the overall aims of our collaboration, I think. Well, the, the project has evolved from being this, this machine of divination that, that Karina, Karina described to being a machine or a form of instrument that allows us to create that ethics of contemplation, that ethics of wonder, of trying to get in touch with the rhythms of these organisms. And one of the things we, we, we're trying to create with this, with this installation is that closeness to the way that these organisms drift in the ocean. Going back again to all these conversations we've had, of course, the, the, the danger in these sort of pieces is that you become too didactic and you become effectively the sort of person who tells everyone else not to do something, not to throw plastics in the ocean or to be careful about this or to think about whether they use the car or not and to think about snails before they, they turn on the ignition in the car. And this is why I think we, we also come together and we share that, that idea of, of course, when you, when you allow people to wonder, when you allow people to be in awe of this natural world, Perhaps, the, the, perhaps you don't need to, to, to tell people off. You don't need to tell them what to do. It's perhaps about creating that connection, about allowing that atmosphere to connect with the ocean. Well said, Louise. You know, it, this is an ongoing project and we, we don't know where, you know, what sort of things is going to evolve from this. We really hope that this correction continues in the coming years and and see where this might take us. Exactly. Well, I think that basically it from us, uh, from this podcast. Just want to finish by saying thank you to, to, of course, Carolina and Katia for being with us today. And of course, Katia, for, um, you've been uh, really generous with us and you've, been, you've allowed us into your, into your research group. You helped us organize a residency to understand your, your research better. So thank you so much. You're so welcome, both of you. It's been a huge pleasure to work with the two of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. 
Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.